This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Well, a lot of virus headlines to get to on this Friday afternoon. Pfizer shots halting severe illness, but still allowing infection in Israel. Pfizer also supplying the U.S. with millions of shots for young kids. And then L.A.'s fully vaccinated people. They are making up one in five infections right now. And I do want to get an update to the global tracker that we follow here at Bloomberg. Cases topping 192.5 million and deaths exceeding 4.1 million. At the same time, more than 3.7 billion doses of the vaccine have been administered. We should note that many of those vaccine doses do require two shots to have someone considered fully vaccinated. Well, let's get to all that and more with Dr. Ian Lusbader, clinical professor of medicine at NYU's Langone Medical Center. He joins us now on the phone from Long Island. Dr. Lusbader, how are you? Good, good. Thank you, Tim. Happy Friday. Yeah, happy Friday. It's good to talk, talk to you. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what we learned from Israel earlier today. Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine provided a strong shield against hospitalization and more severe diseases in cases caused by the contagious Delta variant in Israel in recent weeks, even though it was just 39 percent effective in preventing infections. That's according to the country's health ministry. What do you, what do you make of that 39 percent figure? So I think we're seeing uh, Darwinian behavior in action and mm. uh, a, a more aggressive um, viral escape or these breakthrough infections. The good news is that the antibodies that are produced by the vaccines still seem to provide some good protection in reducing hospitalizations and deaths. Unfortunately, it is becoming less effective over time for acquiring the Delta infection. And there are a number of articles. There's a recent article in Nature from July of uh, 21 that does show uh, the Delta variant uh, is uh, less resistant to not only monoclonal antibodies, but also to endogenous antibodies from vaccines. So, you know, unfortunately, the Delta variant spike has changed enough that it is escaping in part the antibodies that we've produced from the vaccine. And hopefully it really is a race. It's a race between getting enough people vaccinated uh, versus the spread of the Delta. And at this mm. point, it looks like Delta's winning. What does that look like if Delta wins? Not just if it's winning, but if Delta wins? Well, I think it really will mean uh, more widespread uh, infections and widespread deaths. You know, in the United States, you, you have to sort of compare country to country because they're not all uh, similar. For example, Mexico is seeing a big outbreak. Yeah. Um, they're only about 22% vaccinated. We're over 50% vaccinated. India is a little over 10% with a much bigger population. So the substrate, the number of people who can get sick with Delta or any other variant for that matter is much greater in certain countries. But in the United States, I think what that means at this point is that we're probably looking at another 100 million people at this point who have not been vaccinated or may slowly get vaccinated, uh, probably acquiring Delta. And that will probably mean, by my guesstimate, another 100 or maybe 200,000 deaths, wow. which will bring us to the, you know, seven to 800,000 uh, deaths, which is unfortunate. But uh, 
that's uh, those are the numbers or the way the numbers are looking at this time. Well, speaking of numbers, I do want to make sure to include these numbers for Pfizer's vaccine. We did mention that it was just 39% effective in preventing infections. Uh, that's according to the health ministry in Israel. Uh, the health ministry also saying that it provided 88% protection against hospitalization and 91% against severe illness for an unspecified number of people. Those people were studied between June 20th and July 17th. That's according to a report that came out Thursday from the health ministry. So that's that's pretty good news because it still is very effective in providing against hospitalization and severe illness, right? I agree completely. Look, the... Uh the vaccine over time uh, is becoming a little less effective in preventing the acquisition of, of uh, COVID, but it certainly seems to be uh, pretty effective uh, in, in preventing severe disease, hospitalization, and deaths, which is really what we want. And fortunately, Delta has uh, relatively mild symptoms, runny nose, headache, uh, really common cold symptoms. Some people may not even know it. Obviously, if you've had two vaccines and you're coughing a lot or short of breath, get retested, get mm-hmm. a swab. And if you have COVID present on the PCR nasal swab, contact your doctor. We do have some treatments like monoclonal antibodies, which can still be effective. They're a little less effective. But this also highlights why we do need to look for better treatments, uh, whether and you know, people talk about a variety of things that really are very early studies, whether it's ivermectin or other antiviral drugs. Merck is working on an antiviral. You know, unfortunately, the, by the time studies come around, we will have a lot more infections. But fortunately, we're not seeing uh, greater deaths. It doesn't seem to be a more lethal strain, which is good. Yeah, it's good to get a little bit of good news in here. I do want to get your thoughts on just in the last minute that we have, and then we're going to come back to you, Dr. Lusbader. Los Angeles County's top health official saying that fully vaccinated people made up one in five COVID-19 infections in June and warned that the figure may rise in July with a higher level of community transmission. Does this mean that even if we're vaccinated, we should be wearing masks? That's a good question. You know, masks are uh, questionably effective. Certainly the N95 masks are, are much more effective Masks tend to protect other people. When you wear a mask, you have COVID, you're coughing. It contains those secretions. The virus can really get around all normal surgical masks and kind of these barrier masks. You know, I think it's something if you have an underlying disease or if you're worried, definitely uh, wear a mask. There's no harm to that. How beneficial that will be is unclear. Well, let's get right back to the latest on the virus with Dr. Ian Lusbader, clinical professor of medicine at NYU's Langone Medical Center. He joins us on the phone from Long Island. Dr. Lusbader, here we are. It's July 23rd. We are in the thick of summer travel season. I traveled for work uh, last week, over the weekend, and then this week. Airports were absolutely packed. There was not an open seat on any of the flights that I took. This is happening at a time where we are seeing hotspots emerge, not just here in the United States among unvaccinated, but in other parts of the world, too. You mentioned Mexico when we were talking earlier today. An article on the Bloomberg by our uh, own Andrea Navarro uh, writing that COVID's exploding in Cancun, Los Cabos, as a new wave has hit Mexico. In Cancun, for example, cases have soared to a point where the Hard Rock Hotel has set aside two floors for guests with symptoms. And some hotels are saying they're offering discounts for those who are in quarantine until they're no longer contagious, it raises the question, should people, even if they're vaccinated, be traveling right now? You know, that I think has to be a very individual decision based on your underlying health. And when you got the vaccine, uh, we are periodically checking antibody levels. And most 
patients that I've just randomly checked or if they're traveling and concerned, some countries require uh, antibody proof. Hmm. Um, most antibodies are high, very high from spike protein. But now we're seeing that that alone doesn't really fully protect you. Um, I think it's going to be very hard to get the genie back in the bottle. You know, we're, we're really only vaccinating globally a, a very small percent. It is likely this is just going to continue to spread because it's so highly contagious and uh, fortunately not more lethal, but totally you will have an increased number of deaths. Um, I think people have to be careful to go to uh, hotspots like Mexico where only 20% of people are vaccinated and they're having outbreaks. You know, I would think twice about uh, putting myself in that environment if I could avoid it or uh, to be very careful and distance and uh, try and get an N95 mask. I, did you say that you were able to test for antibody levels ahead of people going to hotspots? Yeah, I don't want to encourage everyone running to their doctor saying, please send antibody levels. Right. Um, but just randomly in some patients, because when they do uh, travel, they're, they're required to not only show proof of um, a vaccination, but actually antibodies. And so randomly, when I've checked people for spike protein, they're very, very high, which is good. In other words, it shows the, the vaccines are working, you know, and there's a debate as to uh, vaccinating younger and younger kids. There are pros and cons to that, obviously. But um, the problem, unfortunately, is even if you have high antibodies, that doesn't seem to prevent uh, the escape. In other words, that uh, Delta, you may get that infection. It does seem to be partially controlled, uh, but it doesn't guarantee that you will not get that uh uh, a Delta infection, for sure. Dr. Lusbader, I just wonder, and this is a question that we've, we've talked about before, with the Delta variant spreading so rapidly among unvaccinated populations here in the United States and outside of the United States, do we get to a point where we think about being on the other side of this vaccine, or the other side of the pandemic, rather, is just a question of how quickly people can get infected and either recover or not recover, and that's how the virus dies out. Right. That's how the that's how the 1918 pandemic right. uh, spread. It took three years, uh, a large percent of it was about a 10 percent death rate. Uh, we fortunately are, are much lower than that, somewhere, you know, one percent or below. But that varies from country to country. There are some countries that have a very high percent, whether or not that's due to poor hospital facilities or underlying medical illnesses, obesity, diabetes. Brazil, for example, has a very high percent death rate. But, yeah, what you're saying is unless we can get vaccines distributed, we're really looking at 8 billion people somewhere in that, you know, the global population getting infected. And uh, most will do well and recover. The problem is we're seeing um, post-COVID or long-haul uh, symptoms. So even though most people do well, COVID leaves a mark. There are some brain issues, yeah. and brain fog, and, and, and long-haul symptoms. So... If you can avoid it, it would be good, which is an argument for vaccinating young kids. We vaccinate, you know, young kids for hepatitis B. But in kindergarten, long before they're going to have any exposure or possible exposure. So it's something to think about. We need, you know, good safety data. But uh, we're playing catch up at this point. The virus is really outrunning us. And all we can do is try and. Yeah. Um, block and tackle as best as can be. It's too bad because a few weeks ago, I don't think we would have been having the same conversation. Dr. Ian Lusbader, thank you so much for taking the time as you do on Fridays. Clinical Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone's Medical Center. He joins us on the phone from Long Island.
This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Well, the new issue of Bloomberg Business Week is out on newsstands now. All of the articles are also available online. Joining me now is Joel Weber, editor at Bloomberg Business Week. He's with me in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. Joel, I got my hands on the new issue, the cover story, the border, the builder, the border, and the $30 million boondoggle. Tommy Fisher, we went through his story yesterday. How did you choose it for the cover? Uh, we had this amazing uh, photo shoot, and you know you get to see his wall and it is not ugly it is striking and we also photographed the very end of it which speaks to the project because he he built uh, uh only he's only built 3 miles of it uh it looks highly secure because of that you can just walk around the end of it if you need to <laughs> um but i once we kind of saw all the artwork um and have this great untold story of this guy who was bold enough to drop $30 million building a wall. I was like, that's an untold story that I want on the cover this week. Uh, I got to tell you, too, uh, just scrolling through Twitter yesterday and today, uh, this story has absolutely taken off. It caught wildfire. It, yeah, it did. totally gone viral. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I mean, what is that? Not the secret sauce, because I think that that's kind of impossible to answer, but this story seems to kind of touch every little list when we think about what makes a story work. Well, the I think the backdrop to the story is that, keep in mind, we have a crisis on the southern american border right right now right so and i think wherever your politics are on on uh immigration um uh on the wall itself um there there are elements of the story are going to resonate with you um and i think we we told a kind of a bigger story um about the business guy sort of at the center of of this particular wall and it's it you know it's really we don't go into the the immigration one way or another. So I, I think it ends up resonating with a lot of different audiences because of that. And at the, mo- at, at the very center of it is this, you know, businessman who made a, a choice to put $30 million into a project that he has not made that money back on yet. One part of the story that I found absolutely fascinating was the idea that the state of Texas could actually be the one potentially to continue this wall project now that uh, President Trump is no longer in office. We, we, we have no real intelligence behind that, but Governor Abbott has indicated that he is interested in building a wall. If you're a Texan and someone's already solved a problem for you like Tommy Fisher could have could could have done, I think that puts him sort of at the at the front of the list, right? Uh, the, what Tommy Fisher accomplished was was the bigger was the bigger thing here, which was that he built a wall on private land. This is a private project, right? It's not federal land, which is what has allowed the wall to a wall to exist elsewhere on the border. Um, the fact that Texas is all privately held along the Rio Grande, that's a huge problem if you're going to do any sort of uh, a building like this and, and why, uh, you know, it's sort of an, an unlikely success story for, for him. Although, again, I'll mention that he's still $30 million. <laughs> yeah, he's still he's still waiting to get paid. Well, let's move a little further west uh, to West Texas. That was the site Tuesday of Jeff Bezos taking off from near Van Horn, Texas. You were there. I was there. That's how I know this geography yeah. so well. I did yeah. a lot of driving in West Texas. On, by the way, did you know the Big speed open limit? areas. Speed limit, no, 80, 80 miles an hour. I think I it's mean, advisable yeah. 80 miles an hour. I think you can go as fast as you want. In this teeny little Nissan that I, I, I rented. I'm, I'm hoping. I could barely make it to 80 miles an hour. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> but I, I nonetheless was able to. Uh, Ashley Vance had a great piece and has a great piece in the current issue of the magazine arguing that the future of space is much bigger than just Bezos, Branson, or Musk. It was a great read to, to really dig into ahead of my visit there. Yeah, so Ashley wrote this story. Um, he, he knows a lot about space and sort of the space economy. And what his ultimate takeaway, I think, in this story was like, you know, it's for all the billionaires in space all of a sudden, it, it, that is just a very small amount of, of the bigger space story. Yeah. The space economy, in part helped by SPACs, actually, has really caught fire. We're talking like what the economy of the future is really going to be powered by this. And I think, you know, what Musk, the Musk angle here is, you know, obviously um, he's in the rocket business, but Starlink and the internet potential is also uh, on a lot of people's minds now as, as, as that becomes potentially a really viable way to get cheap broadband to places that haven't had it yet. Um, but he also found this kid, and this is what I love about what's happened with, with space. He found a kid who's basically just been able to use satellites that have amazing imaging capabilities. And, and this kid who's like just graduating college was the one who found what ends up being, um, you know, nuclear, a nuclear, a new nuclear site in China that heretofore was previously unknown. Right. Um, so it actually goes a lot of different places, but it's like, forget about the billionaires. There's a lot of other really interesting things happening in space. I, right I think now. it's such an important point, and I think it's a really good way to think about billionaires going to space because they've said that space tourism is just a small part of this. And if we were to think back to 60 years ago when Alan Shepard was the first American to go into space, we didn't know there was going to be such thing as an internet. We didn't know that there could be satellites who could deploy, uh, that Elon Musk could deploy and get internet to millions yep. of people who don't actually have internet. So I think that the opportunities here are ones that we don't even know about. And it's potentially the breakthroughs are just going to be coming with uh, increasing speed. So the the cost of getting up there uh still beyond my budget but yeah. <laughs> the the other effects that will come out of this stuff is going to be i think it's for the next 5 to 10 years it's going to be a really fascinating space to watch well another space to watch yeah, i i see what you did there <laughs> um Joel i do want to get to a couple more stories uh this one by Kelly Gilblom product placement finds new relevance in ad free streaming the I, idea I think watching, this is really yeah. interesting story because the, the part of the reason, and Kelly goes into this in the story, you know, because of the the rivalry and the shakeout between Apple and Facebook, there is this sort of new dawn that I think everyone's trying to figure out what it's going to look like. How are advertisers going to spend that money when suddenly you can't? Facebook maybe doesn't track them as well now that users have the ability to opt out with iPhones and whatnot. So Kelly had this great little insight, which was like product placement has already been booming. And it's because people are getting out of obviously the linear version of this on, on traditional shows and the streaming era makes it way more competitive because there's so much more opportunity. And you can also digitally change the product. That part is unbelievable. Right? I mean, the image that you have here of like a green screen take, can. Take your pick. What, what Your brand here, right? Well, Doritos, Frito-Lay, you name it. it. It could be Ruffles next week. That's what I mean. When can they change it based on who's watching? Yeah, I think it, it's tied to how much money you're willing to spend. Yeah. And maybe the, the length of the contract. <laughs> but, you know, I think the, the takeaway here is um, that... We don't know how big this could get, but even a retro space like product placement right. 
could be on fire again. Well, it's a fantastic issue full of great stories. Joel Weber, editor at Bloomberg Business Week, with me in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Check out the new issue of Bloomberg Business Week online and on newsstands now. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Well, happy Friday, everybody. Tim Stenovic live in the Interactive Brokers Studio in New York. Carol Masser is off today. The price of Bitcoin right now pretty much flat, trading at just over $32,150, still down more than 50% from its high of nearly $65,000 back in April. Well, let's get into all things Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, decentralized finance, a.k.a. DeFi, and more with Michael Sonnenschein, the CEO of Grayscale Investments. It's the world's largest digital currency asset manager. Michael, it's so great to chat with you. How are you doing on this Friday afternoon? I am doing excellent. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to chat with you. Well, I'm excited as well. I want to start with the big picture here, just the, the price of Bitcoin. I think still when people think cryptocurrency, Bitcoin is the number one thing that comes to mind. And you can't help but think about that more than 50% decline that we have seen in recent months, struggling to get back to anywhere close to where it was back in April. What do you make of the volatility that we've seen and sort of the struggle for it to get higher? I think investors are used to this kind of volatility um, in the digital currency asset class as a whole. Um, that certainly includes Bitcoin. Um, it has been a very interesting market. I think we've seen a couple of um, exchanges um, have some leverage come out of them, which we generally think is something that's healthy for the overall ecosystem. But when we do see pullbacks in prices like this, which is not a new phenomenon within crypto, we tend to see these kinds of corrections, see the asset class form uh, a stronger base to only eventually go on to take out um, higher highs over time. And so when investors do see these pullbacks, they will often use them opportunistically to add to their positions and be able to form uh, you know, a larger position in digital assets like Bitcoin and others. What about the next positive catalyst for, for Bitcoin? I, I, I can clearly remember the biggest negative catalyst that we recently heard about. And I think it's fair to say that Elon Musk expressing concerns a few months ago over the environmental cost associated with cryptocurrencies and, and, and Bitcoin. Uh, but that came after he said that Tesla would accept Bitcoin as payment for Tesla's cars. And that seemed like a really big positive catalyst. What do you think is the next actual positive catalyst for, for Bitcoin? We heard comments from Jack Dorsey yesterday about Twitter's future in Bitcoin. They didn't seem to, to help Bitcoin's price much. I think you're going to continue to see more announcements of both Bitcoin and the crypto asset class as a whole continuing to being folded into the traditional financial services space. Hmm. So even just yesterday, uh, you saw banks like J.P. Morgan announcing that they were going to give their clients the ability to invest in cryptocurrency funds, including, you know, grayscale products. And I think that in the near term, you're going to continue to see wins for the asset class overall, whether some of those announcements do come from banks like JP Morgan and others, or you're continuing to see companies like Twitter and Square and Tesla and MicroStrategy, you know, continuing to see Bitcoin and other assets move onto corporate balance sheets. And now even seeing nation states looking at adopting Bitcoin as legal tender. These are the types of wins that I think help to not only, you know, solidify the role that crypto has within the investment community, but also really begins to shift perception. So exciting stuff from our point of view. Now that JP Morgan has made this announcement, who, in your opinion, do you think is the next bank to do something similar? 
Well, I think you're certainly going to see that. You know, it's already been the case that Grayscale products have been available to be bought and sold through many of the online brokerage firms. But now moving into some of the wirehouses like J.P. Morgan would not surprise us to see some of the other wirehouses and bulge bracket banks um, begin to follow suit. We've kind of seen a similar trend amongst many of them as they built out either their blockchain working groups or even just made direct investments into digital asset related businesses. So they can continue to not only learn about the asset class, but also demonstrate um, just how fervently they're responding to investors' preferences and and, uh, wanting to get exposure to the asset class. So when you're, Michael, speaking with these banks and getting an idea for what they want and the services that that they want to be able to provide their clients, JPMorgan Chase, for example, their wealth management clients are going to be allowed to invest in a selection of crypto funds, including Grayscale Bitcoin Trust from you guys, uh, among others as well. Um, what are the what are the they trying to provide their clients with? Like, what are their clients coming to them and, and, and saying that they need that's that's causing a bank like J.P. Morgan to come to you and say, we want our clients to get exposure to this? Well, as an investor today, there is a general appreciation that cryptocurrency as an asset class is not going to go away. It's something that is here to stay and investors want access to it. Now, the reason that J.P. Morgan and other banks have to make these policies or amend these policies is because they don't offer the ability for their investors to get access to Bitcoin or other digital assets directly through their platforms. Their platforms are typically providing services that allow them to access lending and credit and buying stocks and bonds and ETFs, but not yet crypto. And so their clients are typically doing that type of business away from the banks themselves. So if J.P. Morgan and others continue to open themselves up to having the ability for their clients to access cryptocurrency funds like Grayscale on their platform, well, then they continue to have a more holistic picture of their clients' investable assets. And not only that, but also demonstrates to their clients that they're really listening to their preferences. What is the role that, that you believe that Bitcoin plays in a traditional portfolio right now? Well, I think it depends on the kind of investor that you are. Um, I'd say the first is, you know, many investors look at Bitcoin as a digital gold or a digital store of value. So they look at it as an asset that can maybe help, um, you know, curb inflation pressures that their portfolio may experience. So whereas investors maybe went to gold or bonds or other flights to safety, um, now they also have Bitcoin as an option in their portfolios. I think other investors may look at it as a technology investment, more akin to maybe payments or some of the technology investments that they may have in their portfolio. And then I think other investors may look at Bitcoin um, not only either as a payment mechanism, and so it may be something that you know is more akin to remittance and mm. some of the money transfer mechanisms that may be out there. And for some investors, it's just an entirely new asset in their portfolios. And where they make room for it will vary depending on how they're allocated. I want to get right back to Michael Sonnenschein, Chief Executive Officer at Grayscale, joining us on the phone from New York City. Michael, I want to get further into Grayscale's products and and talk a little bit about GPTC and and others. GBTC is the ticker for Grayscale's Bitcoin Trust. Uh, It's still trading at a discount to Bitcoin. The idea here is that it it, it does give investors exposure to Bitcoin, but it's trading at a significant discount uh, to the cryptocurrency right now. What's it going to take to, to get those things on par? Well, that's that's exactly right. So Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, ticker GBTC, is solely and passively invested in Bitcoin. Um, The product trades 
you know, as the world's largest digital currency um, investment vehicle, we're the largest Bitcoin fund, hundreds of millions of dollars a day in notional trading volume. And what we have seen over the last few months is the product trading at a discount to NAV. And so what we've seen is many investors, particular smart money and institutions, stepping into the product and buying shares of GBTC at a discount because that actually allows them to own or control or have exposure to more Bitcoin buying shares of GBTC at a discount than it would if they take that same amount of capital and bought Bitcoin in the stock market. So you're arguing that that it's been a good thing for at least investors who've recently bought into it because they're essentially, if they were to buy today, get get a 10.3% discount on the price of Bitcoin. It has definitely been an interesting opportunity for investors who are looking for Bitcoin exposure in the form of a security, in a brokerage account, retirement account, you name it. Over time, we do believe that the product will converge its price back towards its net asset value or perhaps maybe even revert to trading at a premium. But ultimately, we are 100% converting this product into an ETF when the SEC is ready to make that kind of an approval, in which case the arbitrage mechanism is built in there to move the product back towards net asset value every day. When, when do you think the SEC will allow that? Well, I think the timeline around it is really tough to speculate on. I think the SEC is very encouraged and engaged with you know, participants like Grayscale and others. But they're really looking to see the market reach a point of maturation that's just not there yet and looking for things like, you know, more regulation around the spot exchanges, surveillance sharing agreements between the exchanges, a really larger, significantly regulated market. So over time, we'll get there. But when that will be is tough to speculate on. What has interest been like in some of the other products as cryptocurrency prices have been falling? Um, Grayscale's Ethereum Trust, for example. It's been very robust. I think if you had asked me that question a couple of years ago, I'd tell you that investors were really only interested in Bitcoin or interested in Ethereum. You know, today, Grayscale maintains a family of 15 different investment products. And that's really been built out in response to rising investor demand for access to either other digital assets or even certain subsets or themes within the digital currency universe. So back to the idea of regulatory approval for Bitcoin ETFs, what's a realist? I know you don't want to make a prediction as far as the timeline goes, but what's a realistic way for investors to think about actually getting exposure to Bitcoin in an ETF? Is it months? Is it years? Well, I'd focus less on timelines and focus more on the opportunity. I think that certainly products like GBTC and their success and liquidity and how widely you know traded and utilized they are is really the empirical data that investors need to recognize that today investors are accessing Bitcoin mm. every single day through products like GBTC, and they're in fact not waiting for an ETF to come along which certainly begs the question, well, then why do you guys even care about an ETF? And the answer is that we do believe an ETF will broaden us out to a wider audience of investors. And ETFs have been a very popular way for investors to access all kinds of investment opportunities. So um, moral of the story is investors certainly aren't waiting, but we also know an ETF will broaden access even further. Hey, Michael, what kind of flows are you, you seeing right now, notably versus six months ago versus a year ago? Well, I think flows continue to be really robust. Um, When we look at the ways in which investors have been wanting to deploy capital 
they again really do often look at these pullbacks in prices at as opportunistic times to add to their positions. I'd say we're also seeing an increased appetite amongst our investors to diversify, that they don't want to just have Bitcoin or just have Ethereum exposure, but they're now looking at other areas to have exposure to. Things like, you know, DeFi, we just launched the Grayscale DeFi Fund, or looking at, you know, protocols like Filecoin and others that are really showing other use cases for digital assets. Just in the 15 seconds we have left, what are you thinking in terms of product pipeline? Well, I'll tell you that we're not done. Uh, the 15 products Grayscale has today are all products we're proud of and are excited to bring to our investors. Um, but certainly as market grows, uh, our product lineup will grow with it. Well, there you have it. Michael Sonnenschein, Chief Executive Officer at Grayscale, joining us on the phone from New York City. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.